Welcome everybody to Unleash, the fastest hour on the internet. Today, we are very excited to be discussing the art of productive disagreement. Who knew a disagreement could be productive, right? And this episode is going to help you accomplish three things. Disagreements will be less frustrating. You'll end up having fewer repetitive discussions. And hopefully, your world will expand, relationships will come richer, and your experience of just life in general will become uh, very much enriched and, and, uh, and a world of possibilities going to open up to you. And very pleased to, uh, to have Buster Benson with us here today. I'm your host, of course, Jeff Tetz, the CEO of Results, where we believe that poor execution is definitely the number one reason businesses fall below expectations. We have a proven framework that's helped thousands of leaders grow their companies faster over the last 20 years. And uh, a special thank you today to law firm Parley McClaws. Now, before I thank them officially for sponsoring and making today's episode possible, when I say the word law, uh, lawyer and law firm, what comes to mind for most of you? Well, probably billable hours. And this is what I love about Parley McClaws. Uh, they are our corporate lawyer. And the other part of it is every time we phone them, it's not about, it's not about the billable hour, it's about the relationship. They're very much a law firm that believes in helping find solutions for their customers. And do they have billable hours? Sure, but relationships come first. They've got offices in both Calgary and Edmonton. They're an Alberta-based law firm that serves a diverse range of local, national, and international clients for over 100 years. Uh, I don't think the founder is still sitting in his chair anymore, but uh, covering a, multiple, a multitude of service areas, including labor and employment, intellectual property, litigation, corporate and commercial. They're really a relationship-focused uh, organization and firm, and they strive to build lasting partnerships with every single one of their clients. So if you got some law and legal questions, call them. They're, uh, they're great to get a hold of and great to work with. Now on with today's episode. Uh, really thrilled to be joined by Buster Benson from California. He is an entrepreneur and a former product leader at Amazon, Twitter, and Slack, and, uh, and uh, Patreon as well. He previously co-founded the Robot Co-op and McLeod Residence. Buster Benson wrote the game-changing book titled, Why Are We Yelling? The Art of Productive Disagreement. His interests include creative businesses, collaborative disagreements, cognitive biases, enterprise software, messaging platforms, behavior change, social games, silly drawings, you gotta follow on Instagram, and making life a little bit better through technology. He's now the CEO of 750words.com, and writes for Medium and BusterBenson.com. Buster, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much. I'm really, really excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. No problem. So I, um, I, I read your book in two days. And I'm, so I'm sorry if anybody's tuning in today that I canceled lunches and coffees with because I was so wrapped up uh, in your book, Buster. But it, uh, it's just filled with sort of mind-blowing uh, information about cognitive biases, about why we disagree, what causes us to stay out of disagreements in the first place, and then sort of the upside of, of what's at stake here, not just for ourselves, but, but the world in general. And there's certainly uh, uh, more than enough issues for us to argue about, maybe as many as we've, as, as we've ever had as a civilization. So we have, we have a lot to get to. And, and uh, maybe where we'll start today, Buster, is I was just so curious about how did you, how did you get so, uh, or become so adept at figuring out the elements of what makes people and teams disagree uh, well and productively in the first place. Yeah, I wish I could just uh, figure that out with through introspection, but I can also confabulate a story which basically goes back to my career um, as an entrepreneur and a yeah. product leader at these companies because um, as a product manager, as a product leader, 
you really don't have much leeway to just come up with excuses or to force your way. What really matters is the outcomes, the results that you get from your work. And after sort of, you know, stumbling along this path, you know, I started probably 20 years ago at Amazon. Um, I've got a lot of things wrong. I learned that it's really important to elevate the intelligence of the people in the room, the people on your team, the people that disagree with you, because it's only through sifting through all of this information together that you actually end up with the best results. And honing the skill at work um, was just a requirement for the job. Yeah. Of course, applying it to other parts of life, like you know, our relationships, our, our relationship to politics, our personal internal monologues, um, didn't really dawn on me until much later. Um, but it turns out that I think a lot of that same kind of um, sort of skill, the art of, of that kind of disagreement is useful in almost every venue of life. Yeah, and you well, and, and so useful in fact that you've referred to it as a meta skill. And I actually, I, I think up until a week ago, I had never heard the term meta skill. And I, and I hope that I'm not alone. So if I'm the only one in the dark here, you can let me know in the chat line. But Buster, can you describe for me and for the, uh, for the audience what a meta skill is? Yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily a common term, but I, I, I think of adding meta to anything as, as like a bonus to, to, to the word. But I, I use it in the sense that a meta skill is a skill that helps you develop other skills. And you can think of reading and writing as, a, as one of these meta skills. You know, even language itself is a meta skill. Um, learning how to, you know, being, being able to walk from place to place, being able to communicate. All these things are things that make it easier to learn other skills. And in fact, we pay a lot of attention to giving people the skills of reading and writing and, and sort of all that kind of stuff. But we don't give people much training or um, guidance in the skill of disagreement. Skill of disagreement is when two positions sort of butt heads, there's a difference. And resolving that is something that you can use in almost in every single walk of life. And it's completely untapped for the most part. Most of us see disagreement and then we walk to the other side of the sidewalk and we're like, okay, stay over there. I don't wanna, I don't wanna touch that. When really it's this gold mine, this treasure chest of potential insight, potential um, building of relationship, potential enjoyment even, um, that I just feel like is, is the most underdeveloped skill of the meta skills. Yeah, so if we spend time getting better at this, there'll be some other, some other sort of pieces of our lives, I guess, some other skills, some other capabilities that will uh, either sort of naturally evolve as a result of that work or be easier to start implementing. So I can, I can see why, uh, why you're such a proponent of this. Now, another term that I think is often used and in, in, in widely misinterpreted, uh, misinterpreted and misunderstood is this concept of cognitive dissonance. And mm. I, I looked up a lot of examples to get ready for the show, so I didn't, didn't look like a total buffoon. Uh, but what's the relationship, what is cognitive dissonance, dissonance, I suppose, first buster, and then what's the relationship it plays to disagreements in the first place? Yeah, you can think of cognitive dissonance as we all walk around the world with a picture of what we think reality is, right? Cognitive dissonance is when we get information that clashes with that picture, where our expectations are, where we're surprised, either you know, welcomely or unwelcome, um, in a sense, to, to see new information that doesn't quite fit with our understanding. You'll often hear people say things like, I don't get it. I don't understand how you could possibly have this position. I don't understand. This must be wrong, that kind of stuff. That's all cognitive dissonance. The thing about it is that we, this is a tool that's used in a lot of, I mean, you can think of um, comedy and, and humor as cognitive dissonance used for pleasure, right? Because you're telling a joke and eventually the punchline, it's like, oh, wait, the thing that I thought was happening is wrong. 
it's actually, but it's a, a joyful experience. Um, we associate it mostly with negative experiences, but it's just as much a part of learning and education and mastery to learn how to take these incoming nuggets of dissonance and use them to grow, use them to gain some new insight. Got it. And so is that, is that what's happening then when, when you start to get involved in a discussion that you don't necessarily agree with, because it can, it's counterintuitive to what you let, were led to believe. And that's sort of what drums up the anxiety that makes these conversations um, uncomfortable to say the least. Absolutely. Yeah. If you, I, I start the book with this concept of anxiety and this idea I mean, cognitive dissonance is what causes it. Right. So yeah. um, anxiety that sparks is that first sort of felt experience kind of, trigger that says, okay, you're shifting from understanding what's going on and being sort of comfortable and safe to actually feeling threatened a little bit. And that raises your blood pressure, it raises your heart rate, it changes your mode from exploratory to a little bit more um, combative and potentially if you, if you aren't um, thinking about it. And that's when the roads diverge and you can go down the path of the unproductive disagreement because you start suddenly start to think of how do I win this? How do I get out of this alive? How do I prove my point to this person. Got it. And in your book, you use a really clear analogy of, of talking about uh, disagreement like a fruit tree. And I'm not going to do it justice to the, to the level that you did, Buster, but in a nutshell, cognitive dissonance and anxiety are the water and the sunlight that feed this, this tree of disagreement. And the trunk is sort of the, the, uh, the eight-step framework that you've built that we're going to explore today. And if we do a good job with your framework, that tree is going to bear a lot of delicious fruit. And uh, so there's a lot of upside here. So I'm excited to get to some of that upside. Now, be before we go into the framework components, Buster, and, and, and we'll, uh, we'll get into at least a few of them, I was interested in about permission to get into a disagreement in the first place. And one of the, I was, I was driving to the studio this morning. I was thinking about back to about a month ago. And uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of the debate on social media was, a, was around putting kids back in school in the midst of a pandemic and whether that was a good idea or the worst idea that legislators had ever made. And I didn't really get involved in those disagreements to a large extent because I didn't feel like I had enough information. So it made me wonder, when do you have enough information to actually get into a disagreement with somebody in the first place? That's a great question because we think that we need to have enough information to get into a disagreement. Um, I would say, you know, the right thing to do when you don't have enough information is to go into the disagreement curious, right? To ask like, okay, well, let me try to understand where you're coming from. Let me try to understand and hopefully develop my own opinion about this. That's a really easy way to get into a collaborative stance right from the beginning. Um, you can even do this when you already have somewhat of a formed opinion because who knows, it might be wrong. Um, and most of the time we overestimate how much we know or um, we overestimate our confidence in a particular position. So I would say, you know, if you feel like you don't have enough information, that should not be a reason to avoid the conversation. In fact, that's a perfect situation to actually gather information, to connect with a person that has a, an opinion, uh, to see their perspective, and to use that to or start to inform your own opinion. And you know, of course that takes energy. So really yeah. the question is, do you have the capacity right now to move into this in a learning sort of context or would you rather apply that, that energy elsewhere? Would it be fair to say then what, that one of the things that really trips us up then getting into disagreements in the first place is stating our opinions as facts? 
Yeah, I mean, we use that as our our ticket into a conversation most of the time. We, oftentimes, yeah. when people say, "I don't know the answer," that almost you feel like that disqualifies you from speaking. When mm -hmm. really, like, you are probably more qualified to begin to understand the situation, to see the nuance, the gray areas of this of the question, than yeah. people that have a more firm opinion. This is great. You know, I, I liken it to uh, how scary it would be to jump into the ocean when you know it's circling with sharks. And you you found a way to turn the sharks into dolphins, and like this is that's the and it's a, it's probably not a great analogy, but it's, it's when I read the book I thought that's exactly what you've done for me because I uh, I know how much I try to avoid things, so so let let's talk about and you've worked in some really interesting places. I mean Twitter, Amazon, you know twenty years ago. Think about how much Amazon has changed in the last two decades, and you were there for so much of that. And so you've been witness to what separates uh, businesses that can scale versus those that cannot, teams that make good decisions with high velocity that, that versus those that don't. And that's informed a lot of what you've built here with your eight-part framework. And I thought, um, I thought we would spend a little time just going through the framework and giving people a bit of an understanding so that they know how to get started. And so as, uh, as you can see, there's, there's eight pieces here. So number, step number one is watch how anxiety sparks. Uh, step number two, speak to your internal voices, develop an honest bias is number three, four is speak for yourself, and then number five, ask questions that invite surprising answers, six, build arguments together, seven, cultivate neutral spaces, and then uh, step number eight, accept reality and then participate in it. So I, maybe let's, I'd like to talk about the anxiety piece a bit more. So I know we, you, you mentioned the relationship that cognitive dissonance plays with anxiety, but how else does anxiety inform a, a, a productive disagreement versus an, an unproductive one? Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time in previous companies and my own companies, like um, you thinking about triggers and habits. And you know, oftentimes when I talk about disagreement and arguing, people are like, well, where do I start? Well, yeah. this is where you start. You start with anxiety because anxiety is something that you can feel directly. And I like to do this thing called like the anxiety test or you know, rate your anxiety where you just start saying things that are controversial and then you try to listen to like, how anxious does this make me to, to, to hear this or to start thinking about this? Because that is the trigger to then say, because usually we just let this roll right over us and turn us into people that are more defensive, the fight or flight response. Yeah. Um, but you can actually use this as a reminder to not do that and to start to think about how can I use this dissonance, this anxiety as a tool, as a, something to pry open a belief that I have, something that I value, and to, to use that as an invitation to talk about that value, that belief directly. Um, you can sort of toss aside the, the, even the topic that caused the anxiety and talk about the value itself. That's one great way to steer the conversation into a more productive direction. But it's really like, this is the foot in the door. If you yeah. want to get better at this, this is where you start. You start to like just paying attention to yourself, whether it's through meditation or through journaling or just through talking it out, um, self-reflection to, to notice when your, your anxiety sparked. Maybe someday our watches will be able to like tell us like, hey, your anxiety just sparked. Um, yeah. you know, you're in an argument, which path do you wanna take? Um, and that would be great. Um, but until then we have our own sort of tools there. So I, Buster, I had a, I had a situation pop up about a week ago where a friend of mine and a, a fairly popular local radio personality was controversially let go from his position at the, at the radio station. I, he's been very helpful to me in a number of charitable endeavors over the years. So I thanked him on Facebook 
And unbeknownst to me, I had probably a 25, a quarter of the responders on that post were very uh, much against what I had to say. And they made me feel like I, had, I was missing information about what led to his dismissal. So I felt a lot of anxiety in that moment. And like, what do you actually do in that moment when you feel that anxiety rising as you say, like, what could I have done or should I have done maybe differently? Yeah, and I like to advocate, I mean, oftentimes it's hard to do it in the moment, especially at first. And so yeah. usually when I notice this happening, it's like, oh, that just happened an hour ago. I will journal or, or write something down and, like, and try to tease it apart. Like, what was the thing that caused me to feel anxious? What is the value or the, the sense of self or the identity that was threatened? In this case, it might just be yeah. um, sort of like not being in the, in the consensus or like potentially missing something or potentially being in the dark about something. Yeah. Um, and if you can identify that value, um, you can in the in afterwards or maybe eventually in the moment say like, okay, well, I you can actually just speak to that value. You can say like, I, I feel like I'm missing something. Can someone help me understand what I'm missing? Um, and then it can sort of shift it from like this defensive stance into a conversation. Um, but so the real, the real thing to do is to take that anxiety and try to identify what do I value that is threatened right now? And how can I bring that to the surface of the conversation? Yeah, no, that, that's good advice. And, um, and taking a position of genuine curiosity seems like to be a good, seems to be a good antidote for a lot of these negative emotions that we feel and in particular, uh, an elixir for, an, for anxiety, perhaps. Uh, so the, the, the second step in your framework is, is talk to your internal voices. And so there's four voices that you talk about, the voice of power, the voice of reason, the voice of avoidance, and then the best one, I think, was the voice of possibility. How do these voices inform the way that we argue and disagree? Yes, I mean, I'll briefly just describe them. Um, the voice of power is the one that we inherited from our sort of animal ancestors, right? It's the voice yeah. of like, you know, get out of my way. This is my, you know, my kill to eat, you know, get away from it. Um, or this is my, you know, my tree. Um, and we just use, you know, it's might makes right. And, you know, through a significant portion of human civilization and history, this has been the law of the land, right? Um, might makes right. Um, of course, we try to think of ourselves as more civilized that, than that. And so we layered on this other layer of the voice of reason, which is let's not just use power to resolve our disputes, but let's use some kind of higher authority, higher truth, whether it be the law or the religion or our values or, our, or math and science. Um, and use that to debate. And that actually works really well when everybody in the group agrees that this is a, the authority. Um, like in, in a company, sometimes this works, but in the real world, oftentimes you'll talk to people that value different sort of sources of truth. Um, so it's not applicable everywhere. The voice of avoidance is the one that we, I would say, use the most often because we use it when the other two don't work. So I right. can't brute force my way through this. I'm not in a position of power. And this person doesn't seem to listen to the voice of reason. I'm just going to step away. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm going to just avoid it. And you can do this either consciously or subconsciously, but we all do it quite a bit oftentimes. Um, and it works because, you know, we don't get into that situation that's bad. But the problem is whatever the disagreement was doesn't get resolved and it gets swept under the rug and that creates debt that eventually piles up so high that you have to deal with it. The fourth one is the voice of possibility, which is to realize that power and reason aren't the only two options, that there are other ways. And then, in fact, you may not know what the other option is. The question, the voice of possibility is saying, these two things didn't work. What else could work? What else could we do? 
and to enlist that other person or that other party into the conversation, into finding another stance that might help the conversation move forward other than avoidance. Um, and so it's really about discovering a new way to relate to the problem that will help you. And it's open-ended and collaborative. So that's the one I obviously advocate for. It's the hardest one because we don't have any evolutionary or civilizational-like trends that have trained us in this. It's really us saying like, maybe this is what we need because we have too many problems piling up under the rug um, and everything else isn't working. We need to find something together. So how did you, because you led some pretty high performing teams in some stressful environments, how did you spark the voice of possibility in uh, when you were in those leadership positions, Buster? Well, you know, anyone in leadership has been in these tickles, right? Where it doesn't seem like there are any answers. Like you're in a situation where it seems like you're out of them. And most of the time, especially in the business context, you can't just say, okay, I give up, right? And so you're really forced into this voice of possibility stance or if you revert back to power or reason to like try to resolve things. Yeah. Um, so I think that was what causes it. And ultimately, you know, once you learn this trick, you realize that it's useful everywhere. We oftentimes, our imagination isn't good enough to actually surface every possibility to us in the moment. And, we, and asking yourself and other people like, okay, what else can we try is a great way to acknowledge that your imagination might not be good enough right now, but yeah. perhaps by searching together, you can find something. Yeah, thanks, Buster. There's another really interesting, this was a paradigm shifting example that you had in the book. And it, it was the way that the voice of reason can trip up uh, innovation and, and can impede um, uh, innovation through improper prioritization. So you, you talk about this, what, what most of us do in our companies, I think this will resonate with our, with our audience, is we have a list of 25 things that are kind of exciting and interesting that we could tackle and, and we could apply some resources. We look at the 25 things and we assign a priority to them and a ranking to them and figure out how, much, how many resources do we have for these 25 things and we draw a line somewhere down that list of 25. So at the halfway point, everything above the line we do, everything below the line we don't do. And you suggest that voice of reason uh, gets in our way in that very exercise. How does that, how does that possibly um, damage our, our business outcomes? Yeah, this is, uh, I'm sure every company does this. Every, every project has a situation. You have limited resources, limited time, big goals that you need to hit. Um, and so it makes sense. It makes it super reasonable to do this, this sort of cut line sort of exercise. The question is how, um, how are you ranking that? And is the ranking actually going to sustain you long-term? Like you can't, I mean, you know that oftentimes what gets below the line are the long-term um, sort of debt like things, bugs and tech debt and cultural debt and sort of problems that you don't want to face right now. All the things that you feel like there aren't solutions to this right now, you get below the line. So you eventually get this big ball of problems that have no obvious solution. I call them like wicked problems where there's no solution. The problem is, is ambiguous. You know, it's uncertain when it's going to be over and there's, you just can't put a nice line item that says launch a feature or, you know, enter a new market. Um, and so eventually those accrue and something bigger has to happen. Um, it's yeah. completely reasonable, but it's also deadly <laughs> for most companies. Yeah. Does, how often would you run into those, those uh, really big problems then? Every, all the time, right? Like all, every yeah. company has these. And you, you see this, if you look at the history of Amazon, Google, Facebook, they every, every like three years, they have this like, oh my gosh, we have to do everything over. 
we have to restructure everything, refactor everything. We have to um, shut down everything. We need to change management. That's that's what you do. Um, it's not the healthiest thing a company could do. Yeah. A company could try to integrate that stuff as it goes, um, yeah. but it's hard to do in practice. And you see companies. I mean, most of the time, sometimes they shut down. With startups, you know, I've been in plenty that you know you reach that point and you're like, uh, yeah, we can't do anything. And in hindsight, you could have thought, well, if we had tackled this really hard problem earlier on, maybe we would have survived. Yeah. Is there a better way for us to evaluate what we try and versus what we don't instead of just drawing that line down the middle as, as, you, as you point out? Yeah, I think the really the, the key part there is accountability on terms of like, are the things we're putting above the line actually the best things for us to do? Yeah. That means tracking whether or not they accomplish the things that you said that they said they would. Yeah. Um, you uh, evaluating the logic that was used to put it above the line in the first place. I mean, there's always these projects that get endorsed or sort of slid under, you know, under the radar and end up taking up a large part of the organization's energy that yeah. then have no accountability because they were greenlighted by someone really up high up on the ladder. Um, bringing accountability into that saying like, okay, well, when that happened, when that choice is made to do this thing, who, how many people didn't think it was going to work? Why did they think it wasn't going to work? How many people thought it was going to work? How would they know if it was if it did work? And then revisiting that in six months or a year and saying like, okay, well, how did reality unfold? Yeah. And were the people that we thought, you know, were there canaries in the coal mine, so to, so to speak, in terms of like being able to predict the outcome? Because those people are really valuable and can actually help inform future projects, future decisions, and help you understand where to put things on the list. Got it. Yeah. Thank you for that. The, the third step in your, uh, in your framework for productive disagreement is developing an honest bias. And you said something that's very sobering is that a human being can never fully trust their own thought processes. So that's very, very scary. So can you <laughs> expand on that a bit, Buster? What, how do we apply the, uh, the honesty bias to having better disagreements? Yes, I'm obsessed with bias and I have been for a long time because yeah. it's one of those things that is framed as a bug or like a problem that we can fix, right? Yeah. And it became clear to me, you know, a while ago that it's not possible to, to solve these problems because these biases are there to help us actually get anything done in the first place. For example, like we have a problem of there's, we never have all the information. So we have to guess, right? We have to fill in the gaps. Yeah. We never have we never understand the full story. We don't understand like what is meaningful here. So we have to add story to it. We never have enough time or resources to actually accomplish everything. So we have to pick yep. a few things and we don't actually learn from history. We don't actually remember what worked and what didn't work as well as we could. And so we have to like, we end up sort of misremembering the past and, and doing the same mistake over and over again. So biases help us solve those four problems and you can't just stop um, favoring familiar things. Um, overnight or ever, because that's how your brain works. It works by pattern matching, by looking for familiar things, by like trying to, to understand and connect these, these dots. Um, and so instead of trying to remove them, accept that you're biased. And you know, this is a, you know, can be applied to lots of different things. Um, and then try to shift from that stance of, I want to get rid of my biases to I want to repair the damage that my biases cause and yeah. move into a maintenance mode of like, I know that I'm gonna make mistakes yeah. I'm just going to make sure that when I see them, I fix them. And I'm also going to be open to other people pointing out my mistakes so that I can fix them faster. And I have this like sort of beginner intermediate advanced levels of like honest bias where, you know, the advanced person can, can actually proactively seek out 
damage that they've accidentally caused so that they can repair it faster. Yeah. Um, the beginning person can just be like, you know, be able to receive the feedback and hear it when it comes in and respond at that point. Um, yeah. But it's a skill that shifts you from thinking of it as this solution you can permanently fix to an ongoing, like making your bed every day is like, let's yeah. repair the, the damage from my bias every day. Yeah. And you actually, that biases was sort of what led you to write the book, Buster, if I understand correctly. In 2016, you had a, a viral, a post go viral where you summarize, I think it was 175 cognitive biases and you distilled them down and to some sort of overarching categories and uh, that'll be available in the show notes for everybody that's joining us today as well. And that's a, that is a, a read that is uh, uh, worthwhile. What about um, the fourth one? So speak for yourself is number four on your, uh, on your eight piece uh, framework. What does that one mean Buster? Yeah, this is, this one came out of um, an experiment I ran while I was running by writing the book um, about trying to host friendly and, and diverse conversations around politics yeah. and trying to understand like why were these going off the rails and almost all the time in this case people were very casually and quickly speaking for other people so you can oftentimes whether or not you're you know pro-immigration or anti-immigration or pro you know um, no, I don't know. There, there's all, all the, all the, the topics uh, we can bring up, but um, people will say like, well, the other side thinks this, the other side did this because they think this, the other side doesn't believe this, the other side is evil because of these reasons. Yeah. Instead of saying that like, I believe these things, I did this, I think we should do this. Um, you end up getting into this weird trick where if, if you just stop from trying to speak for other people and invite them to speak for themselves, you end up having to invite people <laughs> to the conversation. Because one of the things that happens in these conversations is that you don't actually, you're not actually talking to the people you disagree with most of the time. You're talking about somebody else that's not in the room. Whenever you do that, you're projecting the worst qualities that you have onto an entity that can't speak for itself in the conversation. So the reason I like this one is because, not only because it's valuable to speak for yourself, but because it creates this loop where, okay, well, who could we bring into the conversation to actually confirm whether or not they think this and let's hear their story and actually get into a dialogue with the people that we think we understand um, so that we can be surprised, ask the questions and receive answers that aren't just, you know, you know, projected from our, from our subconscious or from our conscious um, thoughts about them. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I, I think I read your book, I think, as I said, in two days, I finished it on the weekend and I have found that, that step there, just speak for yourself, has been the simplest one to start applying right away. And what are we, we're four days, it's been four days since I read your book and I've probably had 40 conversations since that time that have been different in a, in a good way uh, because of just applying step number four. So uh, that, that's, uh, that's a really powerful one. Uh, and uh, for those of you that want to keep working through the framework, please pick up Buster's book, uh, The Art of Productive Disagreement. You know, why are we yelling? Great book. Uh, I want to shift now in the time that we have here because it goes by fast. I want to talk about the types of disagreements that we get into. And you suggest that there's three, fundamentally three kinds of disagreements. What are those three uh, uh, disagreements, Buster? Yeah, I call them the head, the heart, and the hands. Um, so the head disagreement is a disagreement about facts, about information that you can go and somewhere out in the world, look it up and confirm whether or not you're correct or incorrect. Um, and we oftentimes think we're having these conversations. Everything about science and facts and all these things is framed as a head disagreement. 
Yeah. But behind every head disagreement, you know, because oftentimes they don't get actually get resolved by looking something up. And when you do look it up, the other person doesn't think that that's going to resolve it for them. Because what's missing is that there's a second layer. There's a heart disagreement, which is why is this important in the first place? Why do I, what do I value about this that is being um, mis mis not respected or mm -hmm. um, threatened? Um, and the heart disagreements are ones that are about why do we disagree? How are our values different? You know, what is it that I value about that you don't value? And oftentimes these aren't resolvable, right? Because if I like mint and chip ice cream and you like strawberry ice cream and we both speak to that, we're not going to resolve it just by sharing our values. Like, um, and I can't change your you know, opinion about ice cream very easily. Um, so acknowledging that and saying like, okay, well, this is a heart disagreement, something that we you know, both have different values about. And oftentimes the value is about um, risk tolerance or about um, personal risk, right? So maybe something that seems dangerous to me doesn't seem dangerous to you, um, either because we're different people or because we don't include ourselves in different groups of people. Um, and we don't fear the same things, or I think it's going to be much more likely to be to lead to bad things than you do. And those are both good cues that you should move to the third one, which is hands, which are arguments about that are practical. What do we do now? And what do we think will happen when we do it? You can move out of the head and the heart disagreements into the hands disagreements by shifting and saying, like, given what we know, the information we know, given what we value, what do we think should be done? And how likely do we think it's gonna it's gonna turn out well or or not well? Um, and this is especially useful in corporations where you don't have time to go around the room and ask everyone for their their values and their opinions. But you have to say like we're gonna try A or B. Let's figure out how many people are behind it, how many people aren't behind it, and then we're gonna do it anyway. And then we're gonna learn from it and see if we were right. And if we weren't right, we're gonna listen more to the people that were right, and we're gonna incorporate their voices more into the next decision. And it's a way to bring accountability into a decision, into a disagreement without devaluing anyone in the room and without wasting a lot of time just circling around values. Yeah, that's starting to make a lot of sense now, Buster. I can see how uh, the speed at with, with which you needed to make decisions in the environments that you, you have spent time in corporately would need a model like that. Now, I, I also want to talk about the payoff here. So we, we, we've, um, we've explored your eight-part framework, uh, and we've talked about the three kinds of disagreements. Why do we care about this in the first place? You refer to it to the fruits of disagreement. What are the fruits, and, and, and what can we expect to start seeing in our lives if we can get good at this? Yeah, I think when we talk about disagreement, oftentimes we say that it's, you know, it's, it's more important to, um, like, move forward or to get an answer than to disagree about this. I, we don't often talk about what are we trying to get out of this conversation? Why are we disagreeing in the first place? And oftentimes we can actually make progress merely by stating, what do we want out of this? Like um, sometimes that's just certainty, security, um, alignment. And then that, that's the one that seems the most on the surface in terms of like, I want us to be on the same page and therefore we have to agree. Um, I would say that's the least important one because that's an outcome of the other three that I, I think about. So the, another one is just insight, learning. I want to disagree with you because I want to learn your, how you see the world differently than me. Perhaps I have blind spots that you can reveal to me. Perhaps I, you have blind spots that I can reveal to you. That's something that's a fruit of disagreement. If, if you never end up disagreeing, that's still valuable. Yeah. Um, another one is, um, is enjoyment. I think enjoyment is the one that I like the most because it flips disagreement on its head. Most of the time, we think about disagreement as um, 
as a painful experience. And, you know, I, I liken it to like, you're playing tennis and like someone's like a really good server of the ball and you're like, you're just like, ah, you know, just like blocking it because you don't, you don't want to be in the tennis match in the first place. You're just trying to get out of it. Yeah. Um, how do you shift it from that to actually getting into this volley, this back and forth where you're doing your best, they're doing their best, you're actually sharpening each other's skills, you're actually making each other better players, better thinkers, better communicators through the process of the disagreement. That is hugely enjoyable. That's one of the most enjoyable things that we can do as humans is to get into these, you know, we've all had these conversations that are like this, but we don't know how to create them. We think that it's only reserved for like our best friends from high school or, you know, like the, the occasional, you know, person that's like really skilled at mediation or something. So I would say those are the fruits that we get that are neglected um, more often. Like we oftentimes think only about the security alignment one without thinking about insight and enjoyment um, as well. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately building the relationship itself, connection with other people is a huge benefit of disagreements. Like m I have many friendships, many relationships that are held together purely by our disagreements because we like, this gives us a reason to talk to each other. It gives us a reason to enjoy each other's presence, to like talk about things. When, when no one has any disagreements, what is, what is, what are we going to talk about? Yeah. Um, and you seeing that that's really the fuel that actually um, supports so many relationships is, is huge. And when we don't have them, those relationships, you know, fade off a little bit, they get cooled down. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so true. You find what you look for. I like, I've been just finding opportunities to have thoughtful discussions all week long. I, I got into a discussion about city transit two days ago over coffee. I've never had a debate about city transit in my life buster. And, uh, and that was a, that, that was an hour and a half, uh, that I, I can't wait to do again. And we came up with ideas to get some people together to talk about some city building uh, issues and challenges and, so there's a lot, there's a lot that comes out of this. So I actually want to work a real example in a second buster, but, but okay. first I have something really important that I want to announce to everybody tuning in today. And it's a, it's Bex exchange. It's a leadership event that we are running on October 29th. It's a cyber event with leadership expert, Sarah Noel Wilson. And what we're finding right now is that there's an emerging theme and pattern around adaptability and being an adaptive leader. And, if you want to create a space for your employees to do their best work, they have to feel safe. They have to feel supported. You have to be able to roll with the punches. You have to be able to surf the wave. And it's always been important, but in this particular period of, of high uncertainty, adaptability as a leader might be as important as it's ever been. It's affordable training. It's only $149 a person. If you buy six tickets for your management team, you get three additional tickets for free. We hope you can join us. And uh, if you uh, purchase your tickets by filling out the feedback survey today, we'll actually upgrade you to VIP level one, which means it comes with a whole uh, host of bells and whistles uh, like the recording. So you can show it to your entire organization right after the event. So uh, Buster, let's actually talk about an example. I know you have a worksheet and I asked people during this week to, uh, to on social media platforms to tell me some of the biggest disagreements, the most anxiety inducing, infuriating arguments that they get into. And there was a whole bunch of things that were mentioned, you know, politics, the pandemic, kids being back in school, abortion, anti-racism, uh, immigration, homelessness. There were a whole bunch of things that, 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 uh, that came up. And then there was another one that was, uh, was a little less serious. And mm -hmm. it was a dispute between two condo owners and whose dog is really the culprit in the noise complaint. And I thought, 
we could apply the framework to any example. So let's use a silly example right now. So if, if we were going to use the worksheet that you had, how would you suggest that they sort of approach that disagreement for some kind of a fruitful outcome? Yeah. And so just to be clear, this, this, this disagreement template can be done, can be used solo where the other person has no idea you're using it, or you can use it in collaboration with them, depending on sort of how open they are to, to actually being in this. I, I oftentimes use it solo um, because it's, it's just as valuable in that case, because it helps you sort of frame your, your own thinking in the conversation that way. So the facts, the values, and the proposals map to the, the realms of the head, the heart, and the hands. Um, and this template is really about trying to tease apart, like what are the real disagreements here? Almost all the time, something as simple as like, okay, well, you're, you're in this apartment, um, the tenants are disagreeing about whose dog is, is, is causing the most disturbance. Um, there might be a half a dozen or a dozen different disagreements there. So we could say like, okay, what are the facts here? What do we know? You know, both, both uh, tenants own dogs. Uh, we know that um, one tenant lives above the other. Uh, we know that um, one dog is 80 pounds and one dog is 40 pounds. Um, do we actually disagree about any of those things? Probably not. Uh, but you can actually list them and say like, maybe, maybe there is a disagreement. Maybe your disagreement is that I think you have two dogs or I think your dog is a lot bigger than you think it is. Um, and you can actually go down and, and figure that out. The values are, is like, okay, what do you value? Do you value quiet? Do you value, you know, dog ownership? Do you, is it allowed to have, are you allowed to have dogs in this? Like are, um, is there different rules for someone that lives above person than someone that lives below person? Um, and you can start to tease these out as questions. I always list the question like, I know, is, is it great to have a dog? Okay, great, that's a question. Um, is it important that, a, that there be no noise from an apartment? Um, is, it, is a dog owner supposed to take action if their dog barks? Um, what is the action they should take? All these things are value judgments about um, the two tenants. And the proposals would be, um, what should we do? Should we both get rid of our dogs? Should one person get rid of their dog and the other person shouldn't? And if we did these things, um, how would our how would our sort of situation change? Um, should there be different training that they take? Should there be um, complaints made? Should there be some kind of allowance for like you can you can your dog can be loud during these hours but not during these hours? And if it is, you take these steps. And even if it doesn't resolve the situation, at least I know that you're trying that kind of thing. Um, and by creating these like columns of lists, you you understand like just something as simple as this one disagreement, which seems trivial is actually this huge bouquet of things. Um, some of them you can list out and just say like, okay, well, there's no problem there. Like you can actually ask the questions and rate your own anxiety about each one. Um, you can also ask the other person like, is this what matters to you? Is this the question that matters to you? Is this the proposal you're making? And try to understand like, you know, drill into what is their proposal? Um, yep. And in both all that, all those ways, it helps you guide you towards the proposal stage, which I think is the most important one, because most of the time, you don't know what they're actually asking you to do. And by saying, like, but you're because you're interpreting it as like they don't believe that my dog is is important to me or something, or they don't they don't understand how hard it is to keep this dog quiet or whatever it is, right. um, and move it to what should I do? What should we do? Yeah. And how will we know if that works? And you, Buster, you mentioned questions. And in your book, you, uh, you lay it out fairly well there around the reframing of the right question can, can really have widespread changes on the discussion. 
and it just occurs to me like we're all at different levels of, of, of ability to ask questions. How does a person get better at asking good questions? Mm, yeah, I, I like to, the best questions are really simple. So sort of speaking to your earlier example of, you know, when you're starting to think like, should I, do I have enough information to go into this conversation? Yeah. Um, we oftentimes think we need to ask questions that either that, that propose information and ask them to respond to it or propose something that, you know, or state our values and, and expect them to, to respect them. Um, the best questions though, don't require much preparation at all. The best questions are very open-ended yeah. and very neutral. So there are things like, you know, what am I missing about how you are seeing the situation? Like what, what do you believe that you think I don't believe? Um, you know, I'm not, it's always framed around like this potential for revealing a blind spot in some way. Like how can we work this out, you know, in, a, in an amicable way instead of a contentious way? You don't have to have the answer. In fact, the fact you're asking them for the answer and it might help you both get onto this exploratory stage of like, we, neither of us has the answer here. Okay, yeah. great. Well, well, how can we take the first steps towards discovering what the answer is? Because when you both don't have the answer, you both don't feel self-righteously like indignant about the other person. You can actually bring some humility to it, bring some curiosity to it and move forward um, yeah. without, um, you know, ac accidentally thinking that you have the answer in your head. Um, yeah, you I like that. So open-ended and neutral uh, trial and error a little bit. Do you keep a roster of your good questions somewhere like in a one note or a document somewhere? Where do you store your great questions as you come across them? I do. I mean, I, I listed a bunch of them in the book and I, I but yeah. all of them really stem for me from what am I missing? Um, so I, you know, sometimes I have to write that on my hand and be like, okay, remember to ask this question because it's going to, but it's yeah. more just a visual reminder to ask questions than others, yeah. but they all stem from that essentially. Like, what do you, another great question is, you know, what do, what do people like me often misunderstand about people like you? Like when it's about something political or something demographic or, um, sort of more broad, um, especially when you're talking about groups, um, so what, what am I missing about how you see this? What, why is this important to you? Who do you look up to that has this opinion? Um, all these things that are intentionally designed to, for the other person to tell you something that will surprise you because you yeah. don't have the answer to it. Most of the time we ask questions that are leading questions. Like, are you an idiot? You know, <laughs> um, yeah. or like, like, how can you possibly believe this? Like those kind of questions don't ever reveal new information to you. Yeah. They're not going to surprise you. So um, they're not good questions. They're oftentimes just statements disguised as questions. Yeah, that's very insightful. Thanks for that. Everybody that tunes in to, to, uh, to this series, I think has at least one common goal and we're all trying to grow and scale a business. Buster, you've had a front row seat to as much scaling uh, as anybody I've ever met. If you reflect back on your Amazon experience, you talk about their ability to make high quality decisions at a high velocity. How did Amazon accomplish that? And how do you think they continue to accomplish that? It's incredible. Yeah, I think one of them is actually to put the quality aside for a little bit and we're focused on velocity. Yeah. Um, because velocity means that you have to make decisions quickly. And in order for them to long-term increase in quality, you have to reflect on them after the fact. 
So, you know, Bezos says things like, if you have, if you have a hundred percent of the information going into a decision, you waited too long to make that decision. Um, if you have to talk to every single person and get a hundred percent consensus for a decision, you waited too long. Um, I think, you know, this can be weaponized, but at Amazon, there's always this course correction sort of dynamic, um, at least, you know, it's a big company now, so it's, I can't speak for the whole company, but um, the idea is that be right in the long term. Don't necessarily have to be right right now. Um, yeah. And that means making a decision quickly, not necessarily looking for 100% information or 100% consensus, and then being accountable to it and yeah. using that to get to learn because the faster you learn, the faster you, you grow, yeah. the faster you get um, to the end goal. Um, and that means being wrong a lot in the beginning. And they're okay with that. You know, Bezos yeah. leads this by example in terms of like, hey, I'm gonna make a lot of mistakes. Sometimes they're gonna cost company billions of dollars. That's cool. If I wasn't making any mistakes, this company would die. And modeling that to everyone else is a really key point in you know, allowing people to make mistakes. How do you manage? So I totally understand. Like I get and I, sub and I subscribe to that, the notion of make decisions quickly and sort of live with the consequences, do the best you can, have accountability. But I know like we have our organization has 22 people in it. And I have made decisions in the past that were deemed as quick. And maybe I didn't consult other people with responsibility to those decisions. And it's, it's caused me some relationship trouble I had, to, I, I had to mend. How do you manage relationships in that kind of an environment so that doesn't happen? Yeah, I think it's about projecting accountability um, and, and, so, and being okay with being wrong. Um, I think this is hard because people expect leaders to be right. And they, they expect that like, for a leader to gain the trust of everyone, they have to be right. But yeah. that's a long-term goal. And yeah. unless you make a wrong sometimes and admit it, you're not going to build that trust. So I think yeah. saying like, here's a decision. I have to make it quickly because the timing yeah. is now, but here's what I think will happen in three months. And yeah. we're going to revisit this. And if I was wrong, you know what, that's, that's, we were all going to learn something. And yeah. um, by showing that vulnerability, I think, um, and being wrong and not trying to hide it, you will gain trust, you know, sort of, Mm -hmm. counterintuitively over the yeah. long term. There's a question from Ruth and I, and I, and I think it's related. She's asking if there's a, uh, if there's a recommended framework for how to evaluate projects more effectively, uh, or are you saying only debrief after the outcome? It's a good question. Um, so I, I think you can only evaluate the present based on the past. So you can, if you've been doing this for a while, you can yeah. say like, when we, when we did this, this is what happened. Yeah. Um, that's as good. I mean, that method of induction is about as good as it gets. Of course, the future is uncertain, so you're never going to be perfect. And you, so you have to just get into this pattern to the point where you can look back and say like, Hey, we've made this, we've made calls that were hard in the past where there was only 50% agreement about it and 60% of them worked out. Um, so going forward, I think that this decision, this, this project will have a 60% chance of success. Yeah. And we'll find out you know, what actually happens and we'll adjust accordingly in the future. Um, but I, I, it also requires you to have the right measurements. Um, some businesses are easier to measure than others. Sometimes leaving out a key measurement that is slow moving or subjective, like customer satisfaction, um, those kinds of things gets left off the table. And it's only about sales or um, seats or adoption or engagement. Um, I would say pull in all of the metrics you can that, that measure both the quality and the subjective um, aspect of it. And don't let 
only the really easy ones through. Don't only let the measurements that tend to go up through. You want the ones that are hard to go up as well. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And I, and I want to remind people too, if you want to guarantee yourself a copy of Buster's book, Unleashed Overtime happens for 30 minutes right after the main episode is over. We have a few spots left there for $49. It's 30 minutes, only eight people, and, and you also get a copy of his book. The other way to get a copy of Buster's book besides buying it yourself is if you fill out the feedback form, uh, you will be entered in a draw to win a copy. So that's great there. Buster, the other thing I was interested about was, was like, how do you cascade communication? So in a large organization or even a small one, when you're trying to scale and make rapid decisions, what are some effective ways that you have found to share the learning across the company? Because I find that the, the learning is usually between the two people that were involved in the decision or the project, and that's where it starts and ends. Mm, yeah, that's, that's a tough one. I think there's a lot of different answers to this because yeah. some of it is about the structure of the organization itself. Some of it is about the diverseness of the sort of the domain knowledge um, needed. Um, I found that as much as you can to create autonomous units within a company that have a very slim but precise sort of method of accountability to them is 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 the best for larger companies. I would say above like a couple hundred people. Yeah. Um, this is how Amazon does it, where you know people you know counterintuitively again don't have cross-functional meetings with every single partner in the company because there's too many of them. Yeah. What they do is agree on like here's what we're accountable for. Yeah. Here's how we're going to measure that. And here's our contract with this group. Here's our contract with this group. Here's our contract. And we'll review the contract or the, the agreement um, yeah. periodically. Um, so then you only have to communicate a little bit. Um, sometimes that can be, um, you know, nothing is perfect in terms of communication. You can always sandbag the, you know, the measurements for your team. Um, yeah. But I think in terms of keeping it slim and precise, that's most important. Um, mm -hmm. in yeah, for especially multi-level organizations that have to do a lot of reporting. Otherwise, you spend all day reporting. So I have a, I have a philo philosophical question uh, for us to end on, Buster. And you've said that unproductive disagreement is perhaps the biggest threat to our civilization and future prosperity. Why do you think that? <laughs> well, I, it's, I, I don't think it's to look much further than like the presidential debates or to the way that we're handling any of the problems in the world today. Like we don't spend much time talking about solutions. We spend a lot of time merely bashing each other. Um, I think that's fair enough to say as a generalization. Um, so if you think about the world as having a number of ongoing problems, the world is changing fast, problems are cropping up, um, are they being solved? Um, and how would we solve them? Most of these problems require disagreement to happen. Most of them require us to talk to people that disagree with us in order to move from you know, is this a problem to how do we solve it? Um, so the reason it's, I say that this is a skill that personally can help um, in many ways save the, this, you know, the, the world is because if we don't have an experience or a, a memory of a productive disagreement with someone, we will never expect it to happen on higher levels. And when we only talk about debates as who's winning, who won, and not about what was learned, how did they actually reach some new insight? Did they actually build their relationship? Did they actually, you know, move the conversation forward at all? Um, we only ask them to produce zingers and sort of memes for, for, for taunting each other. Um, 
that's just not going to ever lead to a solution. They're not, they're not bad at disagreements merely because they're bad. They're doing it because that's what we expect them to do. We have to shift from that to expecting them to have productive disagreements because then we'll elect different people. We'll elect, we'll approach our own problems differently. They will represent us by doing the same and ultimately get us to the point where we actually move past the gate of the problem into the meat of the problem and actually get our hands dirty and start working on solutions. Thank you for that, Buster. Yeah, thank you very much. And I, and I think one of the steps for us to start making some of those shifts and hopefully leads to a tipping point is pick up Buster's book, apply his principles, start wading into uncomfortable but productive discussions and disagreements as soon as you can in the circles of influence um, that you have. And, and Buster, you said it in your book, the goal of a, of a discussion and a disagreement is not to avoid being scathed. It's actually the opposite. It's to become scathed. So if we could leave you with one thing, if you're listening in today, go out there and become scathed. You can stay connected with Buster and with the show. Uh, you can follow Buster on Twitter at Buster. His website is filled with really valuable resources. You can find him at notes.busterbenson.com. And if you have questions for the show, share us, uh, share with us even how you are going to apply what you've learned. So in a few weeks after you've had a bunch of discussions like these, let us know how they're going. Let us know what the outcomes were. And you can email us anytime at info at unleashresults.com. And the episode summaries will be up with including the video blog uh, and podcast links now at unleashresults.com backslash blog. And don't forget when you, uh, when you uh, fill out the feedback form, you will be entered into a draw to win one of two copies of Buster's book, uh, Why Are We Yelling? The Art of Productive Disagreement. You won't be able to put it down. I promise you that. And Beck's Exchange, we mentioned. Don't forget to register for Beck's Exchange, all about becoming an adaptable leader. And don't forget to join us next week where we are joined by Wayne Baker from the University of Michigan. He's done some fascinating research on the number one reason why people fail to reach their potential is we don't ask for help. And so he's going to talk about his research and how to unlock the power of our networks by one simple thing, asking for what you need. Buster, what an honor and a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, your book is fascinating, and I can't wait to keep applying the principles uh, based on the research and the observations that you've made in your uh, glorious career so far. And I know you're just getting started, so I can't wait to see what you do next and what you continue to do with your life and with your career. So be well, Buster. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the lively and engaging questions as well. You're very welcome. My pleasure.